You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Kevin Carley. I am the youth director here, and I am honored to be teaching and leading us this morning, where I, I serve here as the youth director of an amazing group of students, uh, volunteers, and leaders collectively known as In Focus Youth, and they have gotten really good with the call and response, where it, it might be something small where I might start off and be like, what's up, In Focus Youth? And they'd be like, hey, but I need us to, to up the ante a little bit. I need this to go an extra notch. I need the students and the adults in here to join me in celebrating my sixth anniversary with my wife, Lauren. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. So on the count of three, can you say happy anniversary? One, two, three. Happy anniversary. She had this idea for this intro, and she was like, you should use it. You should use it. I was like, no, no, no. I've got one better. So I love you. Um, All right, back to business. So yes, we are in this series called the Apostles' Creed, where we are looking at this this, uh, historic document of the the early church and and really taking it in the nitty-gritty, line by line, considering what these essential doctrines should, or what they mean, and how they should be believed and, and lived upon as followers of Jesus. And so we're going, breaking it down and considering those things. And and last week, Pastor Brent, he taught on the, the suffering, the crucifixion, the burial, and the death of Jesus Christ. He even gave, got a little graphic as he considered those passages that really talk about how the body of Jesus as he was beaten and bruised as he underwent that suffering. Passages like Isaiah 52 verse 14, which says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Then just a chapter over, Isaiah continued giving his prophecy. This is in the Old Testament. So Isaiah was prophesying of what was to come for Jesus as he eventually underwent the suffering. And it says, yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. That's Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. The key here is, if you are a follower of Jesus, then this is your Savior who suffered for you. And we cannot overlook this. That's why it's in the creed itself. That's why Pastor Brent taught on it last week. And so we cannot create peachy, picture-perfect images of Jesus that keep the elements that we want, that that uphold the things that make us happy, and, and yet ignore the characteristics that are revealed in Scripture, that are true to history, and that actually impact our ability to stand in right relationship with God today. Matt Chandler's teaching on this subject, he he helps me put it this way: we can't take our eyes away from the suffering of Christ because it helps us see the sincerity of our sin. Yes, we experience consequences for our sin. If you lie to your boss, you will get fired. But you're not being beaten for it. You're not being persecuted. You're not being mocked. You're not being crucified for it. 
And so our tendency here today, thousands of years later, is to, to gloss over our sins and act like they don't really matter. But the very sins that we commit are the very sins that Jesus took upon himself, the very sins that he suffered for, and the very sins that he died for. So it's gross when we turn a blind eye to our sin as though it doesn't matter or as though it's not worth acknowledging because he bled for it. He was beaten so you wouldn't have to be, and he died in your place. So for us as followers of Jesus today, we must be people that see our sin and run to Jesus. Run to the Jesus who was pierced in his side. Run to the Jesus who was flogged. Run to the Jesus that wore the, the crown of thorns on his head. We must acknowledge our sin, confess it, repent of it, and remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel that in his perfect life, he died the death that we deserve. He paid the penalty for our sins. He stole death's sting as he rose again three days later. Amen? So here I am today leading us as we examine the next line of the creed, which is, he descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Now this line, it, it speaks to a question that many of us wonder about. Like, man, what, what happened to Jesus between his death and his resurrection? Those three days that he was dead and buried, where, where, where did he go? What happened to him? And some of us have actually never even considered this. Some of us are just like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know, never thought about it. Others have thought a lot about it, but the truth is, is that this subject is actually widely debated. There's no clear answer that everyone agrees on, but there's sides on, or, or people on both sides of the spectrum, because it wasn't actually in the original Apostles' Creed. It wasn't added until a, a couple of centuries later, and so that, we have to keep that in mind, but we also have to keep in mind that we have a tendency to make Jesus into our image. We have a tendency to make Jesus into our image. We like to dress Jesus up according to the image of a king that fits our mind and our understanding, that, that fits into our world. And so that can be silly and playful, like praying to baby Jesus like Ricky Bobby did, but then it could progressively get a little bit worse. Well, we can imagine in this subject, Jesus descending to hell and kicking the devil in the teeth, and we're like, yeah, MMA Jesus. But then it could get even worse when we start to look at Jesus as though he's patriotic to our country and is American Jesus. But as followers of Jesus, we are to approach the Bible with humility. As Pastor Will has helped me to understand through his equip classes, quick plug, if you're not in them, you need to get in them. Because he's helped me to understand that the best way to interpret the Bible is using the Bible. We read the Bible, we do the hard work. Yes, we, we try to be aware of and recognize our assumptions and our opinions and our, our ideals that fit in our head. But we surrender them and say, God, I want to understand your word. So will you lead me by your spirit? Reveal to me the truth of your scripture that I may know you better. So scripture is thoroughly clear about Jesus' death and his resurrection, but it's, it's ambiguously vague about what happened between those three days. There's not many scriptures that speak to the topic. It's a handful, about seven, but when we actually look at them, they're not even, they're not too clear. Which makes me wonder, okay, so why not, Jesus? Why, God, would you have your word speak about the death and speak about the, res the resurrection and both of those events very clearly, but the three days that were the most powerful when, when the disciples were, were nervous and anxious and fearful, why would you not speak to that? And I believe that the answer to that will help us to understand the few passages that do appear to make reference to a literal descent of Jesus to hell. So when we look at these scriptures, I, I want us to, to be able to, to surrender to them with honesty, again, being aware of our opinions and assumptions, but also being humble enough to say, I might be wrong on that. 
One of those passages that that appear to speak to this literal descent is Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. It says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens to fill all things. And we might look at that and go, oh, that's clear. That's clear. This passage is saying that Jesus descended to hell and he ascended to heaven. It's point blank. But in the practice of interpreting the Bible using the Bible, if we look at just the verses that surround this passage, we realize that the Apostle Paul was writing to the Ephesian church encouraging them to to keep in mind of the gospel that they have received and that this gospel should produce humility in their lives as they deal with one another. So this passage is actually referring not to an ascension or a descent to, to hell, but it's actually referring to the stature of Jesus as the heavenly king who did not consider his sovereignty as something worth clinging to, but instead submitted himself and walked amongst his creation. It's a different perspective. The heavenly king, God of the flesh, God of all creation said, I will suffer with you. I will experience the sorrows that you experience. I will experience the temptations that you experience. I will walk among you. And we we see the confirmation of this as Jesus said himself in Matthew 20, verse 28, the son of man came to serve, not to be served. Other passages that appear to, to speak to a, a literal descent to hell, they, they're sometimes in a prophetic nature, like in the book of Psalms, and, and they add to the gray area that makes it hard to say, yes, there definitely was a literal descent to hell. But we don't have time to look at all of them, for, so for the sake of brevity, we'll look at 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20, because I believe that, that these verses actually, they, they appear to make the clearest statement that yes, Jesus was there. Verses 18 through 20 reads, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, he died, but made alive by the Spirit, resurrection, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Now this passage is difficult to understand. But, but, and, and so some look at it and, and say, okay, if, if Jesus went to preach to the spirits that were in prison, that must mean that he went to hell. And when he was in hell, he was preaching to those spirits, where, where that even breaks down into a couple different categories, where some people say he was in hell to preach the gospel so that those people who died can be saved. And others say, well, he, he didn't preach so, so that they could be saved, but he went to preach and, and just declaring that he had won the final victory, that death had died. But again, if we use the Bible to interpret the Bible, we're not just going to settle with what we think or what appears to be right. We get to consider the, the reality that nowhere else in Scripture does it appear to say that Jesus went to hell to preach to the physical dead. And therefore, that debunks both of those interpretations. And so what we do is we have to proceed in a way that says, okay, what is this passage saying? What are the passages that that surround it? What are those passages saying? What's the entire book of 1 Peter saying? And what's the entire Bible saying? Because when we consider that, we don't look at one verse or one passage exclusively and say, oh, I, I automatically know what that means. But we get to consider the surrounding context and use a little bit of critical thinking and say, okay, 
I think I can understand a little bit better. So when we look at the entire book of 1 Peter, we see that a clear theme in this book is that Peter is trying to encourage the readers to consider the gospel and the salvation that they've received as a means to grow in their faith and their trust in God and their obedience, but especially when they suffer. The whole book of 1 Peter is surrounding the theme of suffering. Peter's writing saying, hey, listen, when you suffer, hey, I want you to consider the suffering that Jesus faced himself because you'll recognize that that makes your own suffering worth enduring because it's an example of, or it points to the example of, and the worthiness of your Savior. So rather than explaining what that Jesus descended to hell, the passage is actually keeping in line with the rest of the book as he's encouraging his audience to remember the gospel and to let the gospel have practical implications in their life, especially through suffering. We get a clearer image of this when we see the verses that preceded, verses 14 through 17. It reads, But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That last line in verse 17 is huge. It's better to suffer for doing good. Suffering that is patiently endured for the sake of righteousness. Suffering that is in step with bearing the name and the image of Christ. Suffering in obedience to his word. Suffering for the glory of God is so remarkable that it becomes a powerful form of witness. Because the people who are watching us suffer are looking saying, man, you must be crazy. Or there must be something to this Jesus that you believe in and serve that you're willing to risk your life that you're willing to, to risk your fame and your fortune, that you're willing to, to, to put it all on the line and say, I will die for this name of Jesus. I will endure whatever suffering and slander that you will bring upon me because he experienced it first. And I'm following his example, but I'm also trusting that he's worth it. So my question for us is how do you live with eternity in mind? Does your daily walk with Jesus demonstrate to the world around you that, that now is not eternity? that we have a future hope of resurrecting with our king and being face-to-face -face with him. But can you imagine being on the receiving end of this writing? Can you imagine someone encouraging you, saying, hey, hey, be willing to suffer, just as Jesus did, be willing to suffer in that way, or maybe even in worse ways. Sometimes I'm not willing to suffer at the gym, so hearing this challenge would have rubbed me the wrong way. You can ask Michael Lechner and Jonathan Lechner, they will invite me on a 20-mile bike ride, and I'm like, bro, I'll give you three. Don't, don't try me with that. But the truth is, is that they're pretty fit guys. So in the interest of, of trying to be like them, I should join them. I should give ear to what they're suggesting and inviting me to do. But it's still a tall order, a huge request. But Peter is asking for something even greater. He's not saying, hey, suffer for an hour at the gym or on the trails. He's saying, suffer in your life for the name of Christ. He's calling the saints to remember that suffering that Christ endured for their benefit. And he's calling them to patiently endure suffering for the name of Jesus because others will benefit as well. But a question must be answered. What authority does Peter have to call people to suffer? 
What authority does Peter have to call people to suffer? Yes, Peter was the one who stepped out of the boat and walked on water in faith while all the other disciples were behind. Peter was also the one who, who embodied boldness as he was about that life and said, I'm going to yield my sword and I'm going to cut off the, the ear of the man that came to arrest Jesus. And we see, yeah, yeah, okay, he's got some boldness. But this is the same Peter who also was a coward when Jesus was being arrested. He was the same Peter who hid behind the scenes saying, I can't be identified with this man. No, 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 no. I'm denying him three times before the rooster crows. He was a coward when it mattered the most. When it was all on the line, he folded. But it's this Peter who's writing saying, be willing to suffer, even though in my experience, I was not. We have to consider, okay, if he didn't practice what he preached, like, what, what makes him able to, to write in such a way that he's challenging and encouraging suffering for us? And I know we like to think that, man, we would have been different. If we were Peter, we would have been faithful. We would have stood up. We would have taken Jesus off of that cross. We would have been obedient and faithful, and we would have protected our king. But the truth is, is that we experienced the same discipleship failure that Peter did. We pass up on opportunities to witness to our family, friends, and neighbors because we're afraid of what they're going to think about us. We're afraid they're going to laugh. We're afraid of relationships being broken or friendships fractured. And so we deny our opportunities to share the gospel and to love our neighbors so we remain silent and refuse to be good Samaritans. And so the truth is, is that we wouldn't have done any different if we were Peter. We wouldn't have. But saints, my challenge and encouragement as followers of Jesus today is that we can and should respond to Peter's instruction because of the very line of the Apostles' Creed that we're studying this morning, because it's the exact reason that Peter actually was able to finish out his life joyfully enduring suffering for the name of his Savior. And that reason is Jesus died, he descended to hell, but he rose again. And since we've already ruled out a literal descent to hell based on the, the interpret of, interpretations of Scripture that appear the most consistent, the only other explanation is that this, this descent to hell must have been figurative in nature. Separation from God, that's the hell that Christ experienced. He experienced separation from God. We see that a little bit in Matthew 27, verse 46. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I read this verse and heard it taught many times, but I've, I've never noticed that this was the only instance in the synoptic gospels, that's the, the gospels that share the same stories, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the only instance in the synoptic, synoptic gospels where Jesus speaks to God. He's referencing God, but he doesn't call him father. And yes, he's, he's quoting Psalm 22, but some commentators, they look at it and they, they explain it this way. They say, Jesus, moments before he took his last breath, he was feeling the effects of our sin that he took upon himself. So as the effects of sin settled, his intimacy with God was being affected. He experienced separation from God so that we wouldn't have to. He descended to hell, figuratively speaking, so that those who trust him as Savior and Lord wouldn't have to, literally speaking. He stood in the gap for us, and that is good news. That's good news. We don't have to live God-forsaken lives or eternities because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He endured the suffering that we deserved, and he imputed his righteousness to us. So the physical death of Jesus, as he drank the cup of wrath from the Father, made his resurrection possible and meaningful. 
If Jesus didn't actually die, he wouldn't have resurrected. You can't, you can't fix broken, you can't, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. That's the saying we use. But to a more literal extreme, if he didn't die, there was no purpose or point in resurrecting him. But then if he was not resurrected, then there's no resurrection or hope for us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a bodily, physical resurrection. Remember again that Jesus was beaten. He was battered, disfigured to the point where it was hard to recognize who he was. The last image that the disciples had of their king was of him on the cross, suffering, losing his life. So after he rose again and revealed himself to his disciples, it was shocking to the point where we know the story of doubting Thomas, where he didn't believe. He said, I, I got to see it to believe it. Because the last time I saw him, he wasn't looking too good. He wasn't living. But John 20, verse 27 says, Then he said to Thomas, this is Jesus saying to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. You can't put your finger in the hand of a ghost. Jesus welcomed the hands of doubting Thomas to touch his wounds to confirm that it was truly him. In chapter 21, verses 9 through 14, John writes, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. Ghosts don't eat. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus was eating with his disciples just like he had before. It's reminiscent of the Last Supper, but then even of, of the feeding of the 5,000s where, where Jesus was right there with them in their presence. And that might sound like small details, but, but it's really substantial when we consider that Peter is one of those disciples who witnessed the risen Jesus. He got to lay eyes on Jesus' physical body and be in his presence in a way that really changed his life. It changed everything that the same Peter who hid to keep from being identified as a follower of Jesus was now witnessing the suffered Jesus, the one who died but saw his resurrected body and it changed everything for him. Jesus restored Peter and emboldened him to live a life of faithfulness even through suffering, and he writes to a church saying, you be willing to do the same. The resurrection affirmed that Jesus was who he said he was, where in many scriptures we see Jesus prophesying, saying, I'm going to die, and in three days I will rise again. And so seeing that he did raise again, yes, it's, it's testament to his, his character, that he's faithful, that he keeps his promise, but it's also dem demonstrative of the power of God, the sovereignty of Peter's Lord, and the worthiness of Peter's surrender. Amen. So Peter's saying, if you should be willing to suffer for anything, it's the name of Jesus. Because Jesus was fully man and fully God. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that he did not deserve. He suffered in our place and experienced separation from the Father so that we could have an intimate relationship with the Father as sons and daughters, the same type of relationship that Jesus had at first as the Son of God. He did all of this and rose again the third day, and that makes him worthy of our suffering. 
When you're afraid to stand up for justice and righteousness, it is worth it because it bears faithful witness to the king who gifted us with grace and mercy by resurrecting after he drank the cup of wrath where he fulfilled the payment for justice. So when you're afraid to share the gospel to your loved one who is lost in their sin, sharing this gospel brings honor to the name of Jesus. It's worth it because he rose from the grave. You're not promising something empty. You're promising something that is sure. When you're afraid to say no to wickedness out of fear of what others would think of you, it is worth it because you are serving a king who conquered death as he rose again. He suffered for you, and he's worthy of our worship. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence for the believer. It gives us benefits. Those who trust in him as Lord and Savior, we, we benefit because Jesus revealed himself to the disciples after his death numerous times, and it wasn't just the twelve. It was over 500 disciples, followers of Jesus, who saw him. This isn't a hallucination. This was verifiable to them and even by non-believers that Jesus definitely rose from the grave. He conquered the grave. And that blesses us in three ways that I want us to look at because I think the implications are, are really serious for us here today. Number one, because Christ is not dead, our confidence is that all of our sins have been forgiven. The follower of Jesus gets to declare the truth of Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We get to declare the truth of 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. What audacity for Paul to say, listen, your faith is useless if Christ didn't raise from the dead. But he continues, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. But he brings it back around. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If our hope is in a, a, a Savior who didn't step foot out of the grave, then it's pointless. It's meaningless. And we're to be pitied worse than any because we're hoping for a future in heaven that is not even guaranteed to us because the Savior didn't rise. But the reverse of that is equally true. That because he rose from the grave, we have hope for a future in heaven where we're reunited with our Savior. What does it mean? It means that we can stop striving to give God reasons to forgive us and love us. It means that we can, we, when our minds are magnifying our sin, we can look to the cross at God's magnificent mercy and trust him that when he said it is finished, he meant it. We don't have to add anything to it. There's no tip for us to add. There's nothing of greater value than the slain Lamb of God. Point number two, we experience a spiritual resurrection. We are dead in our sins and we are made alive in the resurrection of Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. That's not just a fun song. We're no longer slaves to sin. As followers of Jesus, we are not perfect. We still struggle with sin, but Jesus' resurrection demonstrates his power over sin and death. And the same power that rose Jesus from the grave it's the same Holy Spirit power that lives in us as followers of Jesus today. 
That's what we learn in Romans 8, verses 12 through 15. So then, brothers and sisters, Paul writes, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your body, you will live. For all those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Eleven years ago, I I surrendered my life to Jesus as Savior and Lord, and and this passage rocked me because it opened my eyes to a truth that I, I was already experiencing but didn't cognitively know. It made me realize that there was no way for me to shake my sin out of my life myself. I was a slave to it. Yes, there are some things that I can say no to. There are some bad habits that that I can sever for myself. But my sinful nature is something that I cannot cut ties with. But this passage teaches us that in God's grace, we have victory. That by trusting Jesus, we, yes, we will struggle and we might backslide and we might even continue to be tempted. But it means that our ability to fight is always alive because our Savior has risen. He is alive. God is not dead. And so point number three is that there will be a physical resurrection from the dead. And this is huge. This is huge because it speaks to the problems that we see here today. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 through 46 assures us of of this. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. It's speaking to our resurrection. It's saying we will resurrect. We will be given glorious bodies when we ascend to heaven, and we will experience the fullness of God's presence in such a way that we can't even imagine it now. And so I think of our, our connect groups just this past week. Caleb was speaking with his ninth and 10th graders, and he, was, he asked them this question. He said, what comes to your mind when you think of eternal life? And one kid went, hmm, that sounds horrible. And then made Caleb realized, like, maybe I should have clarified that question a little bit more. But he answered really profoundly. He said, yes, it would be horrible if our eternal life was on this earth. If all that we had to look forward to was this life where we see violence, where we see wars, where we see pain, sicknesses, and ailments, when we see destruction, then yes, it would stink to say that we are staying here forever. But that's not the hope of Christians. Our hope is of something greater, that we will see Jesus face to face. And yes, we know that our bodies are decaying. I wake up in the morning and I I sit down to put my shoes on, and when I get back up, my knees pop. On Wednesday nights, I have students saying, hey, let's go race. And, and although I was a collegiate athlete, I ran track and field. I'm like, listen, man, I need 20 minutes to warm up. <laughs> it's true. I'll pull a hammy. But although my body is constantly reminding me, hey, there's going to be a time where I'm not going to continue on. I know that now is not forever. I get to look forward to a future where I get to be with my Savior and I will experience no more pain, no more suffering, no more cancers, no more destruction, no more decay. And the same is true for all of you if you proclaim the name of Jesus as Savior and Lord. So it leaves us thinking, as I was talking with Josiah about this message, he was like, man, you know what, that's really powerful because we've got two options that we could look at. We could say, I'm one day closer to losing my life when we're talking about death. Or we could say, I'm one day closer to gaining eternity. 
I'm one day closer to losing all I have in this world or I'm one day closer to seeing my Savior face to face because he has risen. And therefore, I look forward to that in such a way that it impacts my life today where I can't be a slave to fear anymore. I can't hold back the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection because it has to go forth because there are others who are going to die and they don't have this hope of eternity in heaven. So I'm holding back their opportunity, the opportunity for God to use me to plant seeds and to water them as he brings the growth. I can trust him in a way that says, God, you're worthy. You're worthy of my surrender. I'm not saying that leaving this world won't be painful and difficult to leave loved ones behind, but I'm saying that the pleasures of this world don't compare to the glory of spending eternity with our heavenly Father and our resurrected Savior. And we get to be assured of this truth because he rose again. So as the worship team comes up, let's read the Apostles' Creed, remembering that the the lowercase Catholic church that's in the creed is the corporate church. And let's just really consider the words that we're saying because it's huge if we choose to trust it. Join me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He he ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from, and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.